on this episode of the Alt Normal. Normal. The hope of psychedelic therapy is that it can reach people of color who've had trauma based on race and so their bodily features, trauma based on the systemic racism that has led to poverty based trauma and that if they can get access to this they will have more of their lives to live in a balanced openness so that's the goal another coronavirus vaccine has shown to be highly effective welcome to the alt normal an exploration of the diverse voices on planet earth joe biden will become president of the united states doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future. At the intersection of self, community, and the planet. We live in uncertain times. Powerful moments of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The Alt-Normal. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wen, the host of The Alt-Normal. This is a show that centers embodied integration as the absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that's ever more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Culture needs a rebrand that goes deep at the core of who we are in the integration of our rich diversity, complexity, and emerging alternative paradigms. Let's be real. We are in a crisis of consciousness, realizing that the only way to change things out there is to first change things in here. The power structures and institutions can only take us so far. To see a world that's diverse and inclusive for all actually requires us to change from the inside out, shifting into actionable models of power with one another versus power over one another. Now more than ever, we need a new story for humanity that leans into the diversity of who we are and our emerging zones of genius to live more truthfully in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. So let's pick up those forgotten pieces of ourselves to rebrand our story of humanity from one of separation to one of integration. We're talking integration of the mind with the body, the scientific with the spiritual, strategy with emergence, and the individual with the collective. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow, a methodology that powers our core capabilities in branding and content creation. Our mission is to design resonance between brands and their most valuable audience to drive the greatest possible impact. After 20 plus years of working in New York City and Milan for Fortune 500 companies in marketing and advertising, we decided to take the big leap and make a fundamental shift and how we work and bring brand stories to life. The Alt Normal is recorded at Destination Outpost, a co-living and co-working community based out in Bali. They have amazing spaces located in Ubud and Chenggu that enable people to live and work from paradise, encouraging people to live differently so they can work from beautiful destinations 
and build strong connections with others on a similar path through life. So today I want to introduce our guest, Nicholas Powers. Nicholas Powers is a poet, journalist, novelist, and associate professor. His book, The Ground Zero, 9-11 to Burning Man, New Orleans to Darfur, Haiti to Occupy Wall Street was published by Upset Press in 2014. His new novel, Thirst, will come this summer. He has written for The Village Voice, Huffington Post, Vibe, Business Insider, Chakruna, Double Blind, Truth Out, The Independent, and featured on the Very Ape podcast with documentarians Sean Dunn and Cass Greener. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thanks for being here with us. I am really, really glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Awesome. So this is not the lightest place to start, but I want to kind of contextualize the cultural moment that we're in based on all the worlds that you intersect and embody. So we're kind of sitting with these like dual pandemics, which I've read about. So COVID-19 and this racial injustice soup that we're in and that we're navigating in many different ways. And so just to give us a little bit of a a news picture of where we're at, and then I really want your firsthand um, experience of what we're going through. The Brookings Institution says, the COVID-19 pandemic was an exponential shock to much of the U.S. population and also exposed deep vulnerabilities associated with our fragmented healthcare system and our extreme income inequality. African-Americans, for example, who suffer from racial as well as income inequalities also suffer disproportionately from COVID-19 incidents and mortality. According to the CDC, while they make up just 12.5% of the U.S. population, African-Americans account for 23% of COVID-19 deaths and are 3.5 times more likely to die from the disease compared to white populations. I think it's really important to just name uh, the numbers, but then to go deeper. And I would love to start by hearing what your experience has been in 2020, 2021, and what you've seen in the BIPOC community as a result of these dual pandemics of COVID, as well as racial injustice. COVID was a new heavy weight that slammed down on our lives. And when the lockdown happened and we were quarantined inside of our homes, it was a heavy weight of fear. And then it was followed by the heavy weight of death because the ambulances started wailing through the day and night, picking people up in my neighborhood, uh, picking people up from the building across the street, from my building, my downstairs neighbor passed away. My best friend's mother passed away. When I gave myself fresh air and walked past the senior housing, there was always an ambulance there and someone wrapped like an Egyptian mummy being uh, put on a, a kind of a roller, a gurney, and then put inside the ambulance. And so the ambulances were just going back and forth and there was just this heaviness in the air. And we wore these masks out of you know respect, loyalty, but mostly fear. And we ourselves felt that we could be constantly infected or infecting. And so it was like living in a like 
season-long funeral, this heavy funeral pall hung in the air. And it was terrifying. And then the cities, the city, which is like this kind of mechanical, digital a heartbeat, you know, that's 8 million people squeezing this concrete like a giant heart that sends money and commodities and images and movies and music all throughout the world. It's like the heart had a heart attack and it stopped. And so we were walking through this kind of petrified city that the neon lines, neon uh, signs were blinking and you could see the advertisements up, but there was no one shopping. There was no one looking. There was no artist on the street. The city was quiet and dead. So that was really the first part of it. And we all had to have a relationship with fear. And then as the season wore on, and you know that was the first kind of virus but the weight of the virus as it trickled into our lives and we saw people disappearing we did all of us began to see how all of the the stress of racism the stress of poverty that had led to chronic sickness among people who we knew and who we loved it meant that they were incredibly vulnerable when the when the coronavirus came you know so someone like me who's relatively young and you know healthy um i may have gotten the coronavirus, but I wouldn't even know. I probably had it very early and didn't even know it. But there's so many people, uh, even though at the bodega, uh, the, um, uh, the Mexican man who makes our sandwiches and I talked to him, he said his best friend went into the hospital, got COVID there and died. So it's like everywhere you turned, the stress of class, the stress of race had already made people fragile. So then when that extra weight of COVID came down, it snapped their lives. It was just too much weight to bear. And so some people's bodies collapsed. And then if their bodies didn't collapse, their lives collapsed. So they were physically alive, but now they were two to three miles deep into debt, you know, because they couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't pay their note on their car. They couldn't pay their mortgage. They had to get credit cards just to uh, get food. Or they had to rely on other people, which meant other people had to go into debt. And so people may be physically alive, but but like socially they were dying because their dreams were dying. Their futures were withering on the vine. They didn't, they were just sinking. And so now the, the, there's like kind of a thousand lights coming from thousands upon thousands of vaccine vaccinations happening. And each vaccination is like a small little light. And we're starting to see like the little uh, uh, sparkling of the future, possibly that as we emerge from this, we're going to emerge into a landscape of wreckage of people who are going to be way behind on their rent or having to leave the city, leave their jobs or their jobs left, their jobs are over. And, and yet we still have to live. And there's a great question. It's a burning question, like a giant kind of divine command floating in the sky and saying, what are we going to do now? because the world that we once lived in is gone. And the stimulus COVID bill that the Biden administration just pushed through uh, is barely life support. And I, I can hear the triumphant horns. Yes, you know, they passed the bill. And of course it's better than nothing, but it's not as good as something. It's just life support. And so eventually that that's going to wear out and people are going to be forced again with the same questions that the world that we knew is gone and whole parts of it have changed. And now we have to decide what are, how are we going to fight for a world that's sustainable, that we can live in, 
and that is also stronger so that if another virus comes through, uh, that people aren't, you know, left hopefully to fend for themselves. Yeah. Um, what you're speaking to resonates about what's the systemic solution versus the Band-Aid relief of the moment. And, you know, a, in the same article where I pulled the first excerpt, there was a part that really, it turned optimistically, and I want to read it to you and see how it lands for you and see if this, this really actually rings true. Uh, so the Brookings Institution said, perhaps the most important of our findings, though, is the high levels of hope and resilience of African-Americans and Hispanics, although less so, compared to whites, despite being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, both in terms of the incidence of disease and the likelihood of being in essential jobs. So it showed that um, African-Americans retain higher levels of resilience, more optimism, better mental health than whites in the face of both. Yeah. What do you make of this resiliency that communities of color have had to develop during this time? Does that land with you? The resiliency has been there probably since the first slave ship and the first Chinese man working on the railroads in the West and then, you know, being exploited. The first indigenous person who, you know, saw their family getting burned out of their homes by, you know, people colonizing the West. So the resiliency is, is part because we have, our ancestors survived depths of horror that then gave them an expanded view of what life could be like, both at its worst and possibly at its best. And so they had to kind of pass on to their children who passed it on to their children who passed it on to us, a vision that this country has an ideal version of itself and then a real version of itself. And the real version of America is of a deeply sexist and racist and classist nation that it's you know based on exploitation of labor based on exploitation of slaves based on exploitation of women and it has developed a culture and a consciousness stereotypes media images caricatures radio shows that create com racial sexual class complexes in the mass brain and that that drives a lot of the discrimination that people experience and then gets translated into larger systems and it just destroys lives. That's like the real America. And then there's this ideal America of democracy and freedom and equality. And those two Americas have constantly been struggling. And so for those of us who have inherited the vision, the reality of the real America, but are still trying to push it into the ideal America, we have to have a resilience because we've seen things at their worst, but we've tried to make things into their best. And that tug of war between, you know, our imaginations and our pain is, I think, why something like COVID lands differently, because it doesn't seem you know, out of out of place in, in terms of the hardships that we've had to experience. So there's that. And, you know, following that is that 
the kind of fruit of our struggles has been you know, seen and we've kind of plucked some of the fruit of our struggles. So we've struggled to integrate into the country and we've plucked the fruits of an Obama administration. We've struggled to um, integrate the country. So we've plucked the fruit of a Kamala Harris vice presidency. Uh, you know, we've plucked the, we've, we've forced ourselves to integrate into American culture. And part of the fruit that we can pluck is the massive uh, protests that were really majority white, to be honest, after George Floyd. And it shows that America is so deeply interwoven and integrated, especially, you know, now obviously popular culture, but even to some extent corporate culture, even the government, if you look at the military, it's been integrated now for six or seven decades, higher places in the government, the state department, obviously the presidency, to some extent, the house of representatives, not so much the Senate, but the government itself has been integrated more and more. So our country right now is just so deeply racially kind of bound up with itself that the white supremacist or Nazi dream of having a kind of white ethno state is just not workable anymore. It's just not like it's not feasible because for that to happen, you would have to pull the country apart in such a way that it, the country would no longer exist. So at this point, America is so integrated. Yes, it's still racist, still sexist, still classist, but it's so integrated right now that we're at this tipping point. And so the only way forward is to become more integrated. There's no way that we can kind of go back in time. And so the right-wing dream, the Nazi dream, the white supremacy dream, it's really impotent. It, it it does just doesn't work in the reality that we're in. And it's kind of like a fever dream that a few people can escape into and cause terrorism and domestic, you know, terrorism, but it's just not feasible. So I I think that that's why that there is still the sense of hope on the part of people of color, because we can see all of us, the whole rainbow can look into the future and say, if we've changed things this much in a country that started on genocide, and in slavery, and uh, a lack of women's empowerment, and we've changed the country this much, then we can change it even more. And so there's a sense of hope in that in that sense. And that's where the resilience comes from. Thank you for saying that. And something that I like to call out on the show too is we are in a crisis of consciousness because before these pandemics, I'll just say the dual pandemics hit, yeah, I think people were a lot more comfortable just finding answers in institutions and government and things outside of self. Oh, they'll take care of it. Oh, I don't need to worry about that. Whereas now there's more of a shift in, well, the only way that change is going to happen is if we create it within ourselves and then allow that to ripple into our local communities and then sort of um, allow that to be a domino effect from there. So Right. I think there is a shift now into a higher consciousness in how are we going to all create this post-pandemic future, understanding what you just said, that everything is integrated, nothing is separate, and people are just up-leveling in many ways in how they see that interconnectedness. So this is a nice segue because I know you do a lot of work and research in psychedelics. And this is a space that I'm really excited about. So 
you gave a talk at Horizons in 2017 where you helped us connect the dots between many things, but race and psychedelics, right? And while we won't get into the whole history of the, the psychedelic science and research emergence that we're in, we can definitely say that we're in this moment where things are moving on that front, right? Just a few um, things to call out. Oregon voted to legalize psilocybin. Uh, DC has decriminalized it. Johns Hopkins is, you know, in research for how psilocybin can aid in depression. Um, MAPS is super close to completing phase three trials to reschedule MDMA um, as a, an efficacious treatment for PTSD. Also, I read in a Teen Vogue article that um, there's now something called the People of Color Psychedelic Conference, which started in 2019. So things are bubbling up. Um, but that said, the combo around psychedelics and healing racialized trauma, at least from where I sit, it feels like more in its infancy. Like there aren't as many people languaging that in the way that you did at your talk. So I want to kind of open up this really big, exciting topic and frontier um, and just start by asking you um, from where you sit, how can psychedelic therapy accelerate this healing around trauma, oppression, all of these things that we've been talking about that, that contextualize this kind of cultural moment that we're in? When when most people think of of say therapy, they they usually imagine a, a talk therapy scenario where someone goes into a kind of calm kind of office. Maybe there's a, a soft couch and, and you know maybe soft music, but really what the core of it is is a, a conversation between you and a therapist. And depending on the training of the therapist, they may ask leading questions to help open you up. And the, and the ultimate goal of the therapist is to help get you past your own defenses, your own ego defenses, and to understand why you are maybe reacting consistently in, in very self-destructive ways. And, you know, why maybe you keep, uh, you know, breaking up a relationship or running away from love or why you keep sabotaging yourself at work or or getting into uh, constant fights in your family or addiction. And the, the goal oftentimes of therapy is not to kind of look at the symptom, but to look at the deeper cause and to say, you know, are, are you kind of repeating a scene in your head? Do you have a belief about you or the world that's not accurate or not true? And that talk therapy oftentimes takes time because you have to use words and listening and, and emotional back and forth flow to hopefully get past the person's defenses. And, you know, one of the classic, you know, and this is maybe from the Freudian kind of psychodynamic tradition is that, you know, when, when the person free associates, that they begin to kind of project uh, onto the therapist um, who should be a little bit more kind of a blank slate, who, they, who they're in a constant struggle with in their mind, maybe it's a version of themselves. And then as they're talking, they project it and then, the moment of revelation is when they realize like, oh, this is who I've really been in a relationship with. It's a relationship with a, a false image of myself or a false image of someone else or, or a false memory or a false, uh, a distorted memory of what really happened. And then eventually they become conscious. The thing is that with that is that it, it obviously can take a long time, you know, and one kind of trauma knot can lead to, can be connected to another trauma knot. 
and uh, people can be kind of really twisted up inside. And so one of the promises of psychedelics is that is that psychedelics, uh, they, they very quickly dissolve the ego or the executive function in the brain. And when they do that, they, they kind of dissolve the I, you know, like, I think this, I am this, I am this man, I am this woman, I am this race or this religion or this class. They dissolve that. And they allow the, the brain and the, and the, the synapses to begin to kind of electrify, electrify and glow and grow and begin to make new different connections. And so it kind of opens up the pathways of the mind. And when that happens, when your eye dissolves, the ego dissolves and some of the ego defenses dissolve. And so the therapy can actually be accelerated at a much quicker pace. And that what this can do then is that with a container of kind of talk therapy and is that at the end of that kind of therapy session, at the end of a couple of therapy sessions, that you can actually possibly with a good practitioner and, and a good setting, achieve a lot more therapeutic work in a shorter amount of time. And the reason I think that that's important is that for a person of color or a woman who's dealt with sexism and it's really scarred her, maybe because of sexual assault or the glass ceiling has cut her and scarred her, left invisible scars as she shot up through the glass ceiling, whether you know it's an immigrant um, who never felt at home, it was maybe even if they're Asian American have been beaten up because they're being blamed for the quote unquote Kung flu, which is the racist term that the Trump administration gave the COVID-19. And so if you've been, if you have to have, if you've had racial trauma and when I mean racial trauma is not necessarily only because of your, your bodily features, right? Like internalized racism. So say you're a person who's very brown skin and you've internalized racism and, and you've had people make fun of you, your life saying, oh, we, you know, if you're dark skin, like, oh, we can't see you smile so we can see you. I've had dark skin friends say that um, they've had white friends say that to them in their adolescence and it just, you know, made them very self-conscious um, or maybe, you know, your hair texture. And so the other forms of racialized, you know, trauma that aside from just bodily features are the legacy of systemic racism, which has left some groups, uh, some ethnic groups trapped in poverty, into generational poverty. And so, um, you know, like say for Black America, which is part of an African diaspora that's very large and very complex, um, very dynamic. But uh, say you are from the Black poor and you've been poor for generations. And there's actually a, a really kind of horrible term, but it's, it's, it's out there, it's called the hood disease where kids actually have PTSD because of, of gang violence and the bullets flying around like merciless exclamation points being shot out of gun barrels. And they just, just snuff out people's lives. And so, you know, imagine like a, a pair of friends walking through the hallway at high school. And then literally in the next scene is only two of them instead of five, because three of them got killed. And so you just see like their footsteps, but you don't see them, they're gone. And their friends have to carry the weight of their absence throughout their adolescence. And so that leads to trauma. So there's lots of forms of trauma that are, that are about the results of systemic racism that has left groups more vulnerable to poverty and the trauma that comes from poverty. And it's not only about say bodily features. So then you have that. And when that person is trying to live their lives and they keep stumbling over their own trauma, stumbling over their own pain, 
and sometimes blinded by their pain, they wind up hurting other people. Um, they wind up being very like machismo. Uh, they wind up being very homophobic because they're, they're wearing this kind of tough, you know, thug, ghetto, hard armor, which I've seen a lot. You know, I almost wore it and thank God I, I was able to get rid of it very early before it got hardened. Uh, but I've seen people live their whole lives just hardened up, armored up, thugged up. And so, you know, they, they're getting in the way of their own lives because of this pain. Uh, or there's someone who's been in jail for for years or even decades and they had to be really hard and they come out they don't even know how to like open up to the sunshine again so one of the promises of psychedelic therapy is that it's possible to accelerate the healing so that people can have more of their lives to live in openness to love openness to art openness to friendships and connection with the earth with their their own images with their dreams, openness to life. It means that, they're, that, that they have more to live instead of spending the few years they have on this planet getting grayer, more wrinkled and older until they, maybe they have just a few years of decent living because they've barely just eked out ahead of their trauma. And so the, the hope of, of psychedelic therapy is that it can reach people of color who've had trauma based on race and so their bodily features, trauma based on the systemic racism that has led to poverty-based trauma, and that if they can get access to this, they will have more of their lives to live in a balanced openness. So that's the goal. Now, you're talking about medical bottlenecks, bureaucratic bottlenecks, the price tag of it, a lot of stigma around psychedelic drugs within communities of color. Um, I think the younger generation is more open to it. Um, I mean, like there's like Mike Tyson's talking about the toad on Joe Rogan. There's a couple of comedians who are talking about it. Angie Lee on The Breakfast Club with DJ Envy and Charlemagne. She talks pretty openly about doing mushrooms a couple of times. So, I mean, more and more people like I would say Gen X, millennials, Gen Z are, are being more open and obviously the baby boomers from the 1960s, but they're being more open about psychedelics and about, and also in hip hop, you know, for better or for worse, we've gone from rappers talking about dealing drugs to rappers talking about doing drugs and being depressed. So, you know, I mean, there's a shift, but in, in large, the culture may have shifted, but the, the, but the masses of people who are stumbling over their own pain don't yet really know about psychedelic therapy, may have suspicions about psychedelic therapy. And right now, the two things that, that really would have to happen is open up the bottleneck, make it more accessible, and reach people where they're at to say that we know you have these suspicions. Let us explain to you what this process is and hopefully what the benefit could be. I'm really happy you you went there, you know, around this idea of accessibility because um, before this podcast, you and I talked about, right, the real barriers, right, that are in the way for people who haven't historically had access to some of these psychedelic therapies. And, you know, the war on drugs, you know, really, I think, is one of the big barriers um, and, and has this whole stigma cloud around it that, yeah, I mean, it would be probably really terrifying to even 
bridge that divide with psychedelics. If you come from a community where you've seen people's lives destroyed because of this war on drugs. So maybe can we kind of like hover over that particular barrier and maybe talk a little bit about what that means for folks who haven't really made that connection between, right, the the terror of the war on drugs and this sort of psychedelic renaissance that's emerging and can have a huge potential if certain communities had access to it. So when I was when I was doing the research for the book that I'm writing, what seems really interesting was that there was the the kind of the, the use of the rise of drugs in the 1960s and 70s in a sense kind of went up splitting and that drug use by white hippies, although it was criminalized and people were put in jail, that because it had the aura of 1960s and of the hippies and and love, you know, flower children, flower power, and it was seen as nonviolent and non-threatening. And it had the Age of Aquarius soundtrack and, you know, the, the musical hair. And so, you know, the, the kind of common mainstream perception of psychedelics was like, okay, that's weird. It's quirky. If you take so much, maybe you'll go crazy. But for the most part, it's not violent. It's not around violence. It doesn't suggest violence. And it's really hippies, you know, kind of beaming up to the, some alternate dimension. And, and when they're beamed up, they're not, harm, they're not harming anyone. They're just kind of lost in the ethereal promise of the dragon, you know? But the, the, the other is the rise of, of like heroin in the 60s, 70s, and then later cocaine and then crack in the late 70s and 80s. And the response of that was met with, at first, police indifference. And when you look at drugs, I'm sorry, when you look at the books on drugs, like Locking Up Our Own um, by John Foreman Jr., I believe, and then Carl Hartz, Dr. Carl Hartz, uh, High Price, and then also Black Majority. I forgot the brother who wrote that book, uh, but obviously Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And what all those books do in terms of the overlap, what they what they say is that in, in the 1960s and 70s, I was obviously a big heroin boom. And in the 70s and 80s, crack and cocaine. And at first, the police were just like, yeah, whatever, as long as it's in the colored neighborhoods. And some of the police were getting paid off. I, I, I don't think that's a headline news, you know. And but eventually, when the drug trade began to be violent, because kids were fighting over turf, there were two main groups who really responded to it. One was actually old middle class and older black people and Latino people who saw their kids, young kids getting incredible amounts of money, but also incredible amounts of like guns. And then the streets were soaked in blood. And so they were terrified. They were like prisoners in their own neighborhood. So they were calling for the police. It wasn't just like this kind of white supremacy conspiracy. Black and Latino people were like, please, someone stop these kids from killing each other in the street. And so they were literally calling for for cops. They were also calling for lots of other helpful things like, you know, drug treatment programs and, and increased social job, like jobs programs. So they, it wasn't just punitive, but the money that they got was just mostly for the cops. Because at that point, you know, white America, a huge part of it had gone into Reagan conservatism. And Reagan was like, we got to lock up these, you know, ghetto welfare queens and lock up these, these brutes. And so the police came down hard on those drugs and on those communities. And so there was this kind of like split. And so on one hand, you had like this kind of the Grateful Dead running around and throwing LSD tabs like confetti 
as a caravan of hippies followed the Grateful Dead from city to city. They were just like, oh, la, 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 you know, just throwing, throwing LSD, you know. And again, I'm not saying no one was arrested, but, they, but there was, it was much less punitive. Whereas crack, cocaine, and heroin became really, you know, stigmatized and associated with criminality. And because there was already a pre-existing idea that Black and Latino and some Asian youth were innately criminal. So that pre-existing stereotype just fed into what then became the drug war. And so eventually the drug war kind of created drugs that were hated by communities of color. And so recently when Dr. Carl Hart um, went on the Breakfast Club, they really took him to task about, you know, be, about uh, saying that he has done heroin once in a while and he's fine. He's a functional man and he does it once in a while. And he still writes probably way, way too many scientific papers. And, you know, he's writing books. He's obviously a very competent, functional person. And he rolled out the numbers. Most people who do drugs actually are not addicts. It's just a small number. And most of the people who are addicts are addicts mostly because of the environment they're living in, not actually because of the drugs. The drugs are just a symptom, but the cause is the larger depressive, oppressive environment that they live in. And so that stress is what causes them to get lost in the drugs. But actually, the numbers are most a lot of people do all types of drugs, coke, meth, heroin, psychedelics, you know, LSD, MDMA. And, and the numbers say that most people do them and don't get addicted and just continue on with their lives. And I actually know this because I have a friend whose name I won't say, but he, he's like a brother to me. I've known him for like almost 20 years. And he told me for six months he did heroin. And then I was like, well, what happened? I was expecting to hear like, you know, treatment centers and, you know sound baths and like, you know, finding yourself in the Himalayas. And he was just like, oh, I just stopped. And I was like, you just stopped? And I was just like, you know, did you, didn't you you like convert to Christianity? He's like, nope, I just stopped. And I was just like, oh, do you ever do it since? He's like, no, I never really felt the need to. And so I, I see that in my own life, you know? So, so unfortunately what's happened now is that there's a huge stigma in communities of color about drugs because a lot of people have seen families get destroyed children separated from their parents, parents separated from their own best selves, wind up really doing horrible shit to themselves and even to their kids. And so the scar, the historical scar tissue around drugs has, I think, left a great suspicion of them. So if you come to a neighborhood, if you come to a, a Latin church, a Latino church, and and start telling people like, hey, you know, we, ha we have this treatment that could really help people turn their lives around. If you go into a Black American church or a Caribbean Jamaican church, you know, and people are praying, you know, or if you go to a neighborhood town meeting and you say, hey, I just wanted to convene a meeting and say, you know, there's there's a psychedelic therapy treatment that they're doing now and Medicare or Medicaid is accepted. It, it could really turn your life around. You know, they, I think there would be a lot of suspicion. And so it's going to take a long time to work through the pain that's left over from the drug war. And also the drug drug war is maybe turned down a notch, but it's not exactly over either. So so that's that's. That's what we're dealing with when you're trying to say psychedelics as as connecting to the communities of color. Now, that's just in the U.S. Outside the U.S., that's a little bit outside of my my wheelhouse, and I, I have to do research on it. But there are already so many people who know an immense more about how drugs are being used or not used in other countries. But just a small thing to say, I think, was it the Philippines? Who's the the the, the really insanely kind of uh, he's not a dictator, but he's almost. Uh, yeah, the name is escaping me, but I know who you're talking about, the current president. Yeah, he's like killed the drug dealers, right? 
it starts like with a D, Durango or something like that. But I want to say Django, but no, it's not Django, folks. It's not Jimmy Fox. Jimmy Fox is not the president of the Philippines. But they probably would be better off, to be honest. <laughs> Jimmy Fox is the president of the Philippines. But uh, Durante or Dutante or something like that. Uh, Roberto Dutante. And something, someone will, but he, he was like really like horrible. Like he's like, just shoot the drug dealers dead and unleashed it. I know Mexico is having a hard time with the cartels. And unfortunately outside the U S again, in part because of poverty, in part because of mass incarceration, in part because of middle-class, you know, authentic fear and, and disgust and exhaustion. And then in part because of, of, of political parties that want to capitalize on that exhaustion that drugs now have become the battle zone and they don't really need to be. They actually don't need to be. Um, I think paths towards legalization and making them a part of the market economy and creating cultures around drug use that are not just about, sometimes it can be hedonistic, but sometimes it can be more therapeutic, um, could, do, could go a long way to decreasing the violence that we see that's really destroying countries. Yeah, again, it always comes back to this uh, systemic, yeah, in institutions and oppressive systems that really form the bedrock of all of these other surface issues that we see day to day. And I kind of want to go personal now because you you have your own lived experience with psychedelics. You know, on the show, we really like to explore what's the new story and what's the old story dying out in order for us to step forward and build this more inclusive space where we have more identities, more voices, and we can create this, you know, with all of that in mind and in body. So, you know, we talked before this podcast about the importance of set and setting. And I know, you know, in sort of the psychedelic science, research, medical space, that's that's always been sort of a theme. When you administer the psychedelic medicines in the right set and setting, you can have very different results than, you know, if it's just free flowing and people just take it, you know, for hedonistic reasons or, you know, it's not as um, consciously thought through. So maybe we can talk a little bit about like, what does set and setting mean to you in terms of your own personal experience with psychedelics and and how you came to all these realizations about the the potential power of psychedelics in your own life yeah when people think of set and setting i you know i let me give i will give it a, a very kind of visual example uh, of different types of set and setting so in the medical kind of therapeutic model set and setting would be say a very comfortable you know couch or bed a soft pillow, maybe some incense or candles, and your therapist is there and the set and the setting is, is focused on therapy, focused on questions to help you get past ego defenses, to talk about very painful or vulnerable uh, moments in your life that have been lodged inside of your, your soul, like chunks of ice and or bits of metal. And so that as you go through your life, you know, the metal and the ice are kind of constantly grinding against each other. So it's almost hard to move without, without feeling like you're in pain. And so that kind of set and setting is that how do we, you know, set a very calm place, a very safe, almost embryonic, you know, protein sack so that you can feel like an embryo again, and that you can be reborn. Like you can, you can regrow parts of you that have been mauled or hawked or, or hacked off by life. So that's that's kind of the therapeutic candle, you know, Zen 
beatific therapy setting. There's the other set and setting of like, you know, popping a, an ecstasy pill and being at a rave in front of speakers that are like turned up to like a hundred, whatever. And the DJ is putting a fat, like a thick ass, booty ass beat. And, and the beat travels through your body and seems to hit every atom, electron and neutron on the way out so that your whole body is just ringing. Every atom is ringing like a, a millions and millions and millions of like tiny little Liberty Bells. And so there's like, you're just vibrating joy. And you're just and like, and, you know, and the speaker turns on and the sound waves are like, and you're just in this like complete sound big bang universe moment. And, you know, it's not about therapy. It's not about, it's just about having like a balls, good time, you know, having a great time. And that's a very aesthetic, joyful, playful experience. And that's a different type of set and setting. So, you know, it's very, it's very, you know, important because, um, when you dissolve your ego and you kind of become a, a neuron puddle and your mind becomes more fluid, more watery, and it can go to different shapes. I think the third term that probably has not really been as promoted yet is container. Like every time you have water, whether you pour it in your palm, whether you pour it in a cup, whether you pour it in a bucket, whether you pour it in a plants so that the bud or the plant can grow, water needs a container. Well, your consciousness that becomes more fluid after psychedelics, it needs a container. And so the set and setting leads into what kind of container are you going to use uh, to shape what your consciousness is afterwards or what it gets poured into. And so my personal experience with psychedelics, you know, first it was in college and, you know, I went to a college, it was like a liberal arts college and, you know, it was predominantly white and it was, you know, it was in the nineties. So like we had, a, it was more than tokenism. We actually had like a small amount of people of color, but it was a small amount, but it, like just enough so that we didn't feel totally alienated. And and so when I did psychedelics there, you know, it was, it was, I was basically kind of writing the coattails of white privilege because the cops weren't coming in, banging on anyone's door. And, you know, the RAs were, they didn't care. They were smoking joints themselves, you know? So it's like, no one cared. And, and the school was known for that. Like there was a joke that if this particular building uh, went on a fire, the whole city of Boston would be high for a week. So there was so much weed in everyone's closet and under everyone's bathroom. So, so the first time I was in psych, it was just fun though. Like I just, I was going to raves, we were having a good time. We were talking, like staying up late at night, like reading things like, you know, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe or um, cow, even Cowgirls Get, Get the Blues or uh, Still Life with Woodpecker, like all these kind of weird novels and looking at, you know, posters. And so it was a very kind of hippie, fun, psychedelic space to be in, right? And, it, and it, that's what it was. The first time I felt psychedelics as a healing thing, though, was um, the first year I went to Burning Man. It was 2002. And leading up to Burning Man was a very difficult year because um, I, I was in Boston. I was born in New York. And so I got accepted to graduate school at the Graduate Center in New York. And I returned back to the city at August 2001. So September happens and we're all terrified, nervous, scared. I was walking through uh, 42nd Street, Grand Central, and everyone was, you know, crisscrossing. The crowd was going to their separate subways and we heard this pop and everyone froze. And we looked, literally people ducked because we thought a bomb had gone off and it was a little girl with a balloon and the balloon had deflated in her hand. 
And everyone was so nervous that we just instantly ducked. I remember one time, uh, like a month after 9-11, I was in the movie theater and the lights flashed and all of a sudden everyone just like grabbed their chest because we thought like, oh shit, there was a, a bomb. And it wasn't. It was just someone accidentally turned on the lights. So we were just wired up. And there was a lot of hate crimes. A lot of a lot of Muslim, uh, Arab, or even people who looked Arab were getting beat up in the street, insulted. So we, I was really tense. And so my friends invited me to Burning Man. And when I first got to Burning Man, everyone was like, hey, man, it's happy. It's all chill. It's all good. Hippie love, hippie love. I was like, fuck all of you, because I was angry that people could be happy when the, the ash of dead people was rising into the sky. And I was like, how dare you be happy when, you know, we lost like so many people. And there was a guy, I was like, I was really angry. And I, and I, I was like nailing my tent down during a dust storm. And this guy literally across, across from me, and he goes, hey, are you okay? And I could tell he was from New York from his accent. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not feeling it. And he's like, you know, are you from New York? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm Tony. I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, hey, let me give you something. And he gave me some ecstasy and some acid. And he, and he said, look, this is not a cure. I know what you're going through. Like, I know what you're going through. It's not a cure, but just, just take it. And so he gave me a big hug. And then I, and I, and I, and I walked down to the desert and I took him and, and the ecstasy and the acid kind of had different highs at the same time. One was a head high, one was a body high. And then sometimes they kind of rose together in a big wave climax. And so I felt with each wave, it was as if my ego and my body began to be pulled apart. And my ego finally was like thrown away. And it was just like my body was being massaged. And then I realized it was my body that was massaging my body. It was all the emotions inside of me. And they were coming out of these big ocean waves that were slamming against the rocks. And the rocks were my words. The rocks were my thoughts. There were these like hard things that were shaped by history. But my emotions, which were these older oceanic part of the body, was slamming against the rocks. And so I was out in the desert and I remember just like crying. You know, it was, it was just like, like, like I was crying so much. It was like bird wings were coming out of my eyes and I was like weeping. And I was like punching the, the, the ground like, like a sledgehammer. And I screamed and I cried. And then finally, at the end of it, I, I just felt empty clean and so I, I wiped the sand off my face and and i was i was definitely peeking and then i i went back um and i followed the sound of the of the drums and i saw the fire and there was this big fire it wasn't the burn but it was a big fire and a lot of drums and i just like took off my poncho i took off my shirt and i was topless and i was just running around the fire with everyone and the heat was melt was literally melting some of the chemicals away because i was sweating so much i felt like i was sweating them out and, and so the chemical that took over wasn't the acid, it wasn't the ecstasy, it was just joy. It was, my, it was actually my own bodily's joy. And so, so then the burn came to a close and we all drove back and I drove back to the, um, to the airport and I took a flight home. And I remember coming out of JFK airport and I was waiting for the Airbus to take me back to the subway. And I was there in my ponch and I was covered with like playa dust. And I just felt, my body felt very rubber band loose. My body felt like cooked spaghetti. I just felt relaxed. And I could look at other people's bodies and I could see the tension in their neck and their jaws and their eyes and their hands were tight and their calves or butts, everything was tight. I was like, man, you know, my people are still hurting. They're still tight. They're still living. They're still living in the absence of the towers. They're worried that another one's going to fall. And I realized that psychedelics had helped me accelerate my healing years 
ahead of other people in New York, that it would take people in New York maybe nine years before they could really let go and relax. And I got there in one night on, on ecstasy and LSD. And so that was the first time I realized that the, there's a book called The Body Holds the Score and that the body is like a sponge and that all the anxiety and all that tension travel like little droplets of poison along our nerves and it burns all the muscles along the way and the muscles clamp tight because they're trying to stop the anxiety from spreading. And so our bodies become prisons inside of a prison inside of a prison and we get really tense and tight. And I realized that we're holding history in our bodies and that one of the ways that psychedelic therapy helps, and I'm not going to pretend that what I did in the desert was technical therapy, but it was healing and it released it from my body. I was able to release it from my body because the ego wasn't in the way. And, and so I realized that was probably the first time that I had a healing experience, excuse me, not just like a, you know, not just like an aesthetic experience where you're, you're in front of speakers and the decibels are turned loud and your skeleton is shaking from the sound vibrations. That's great. Like, you know, like uterus to the wall type of fun, but that's, that was a different aesthetic experience. This was a real healing experience. And that's when from then on, I knew that, that psychedelics could play that other role in my life. And then going forward, when I meet other people who obviously are carrying around lots of tension in their bodies, tense parts in their body, I realized that, oh, they, if this was something they could do, it could light speed them past some of their pain and that they could have more of their life to themselves on their own terms, you know? And so that's, that's when I realized like, oh, psychedelic therapy, aside from all like you know, like the, the neuroscience wonkery and the new age, you know, kind of mystic woo woo, like just on a, on a bodily level, I know from experience that psychedelic therapy actually works. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of just politics. It's like, well, how, how do you approach people? How do you tell them about it? How do you build an infrastructure that makes this possible? And so that's, that to me, I think is, is where I ended and now that the book is coming into shape, I'm beginning to realize, I think that the medical model is going to help a certain class, uh, maybe middle or upper class people who are more open to it. But it seems that one of the harshest things that society does is that when it puts us into our social roles, is that it kind of programs our brain to think in, in kind of convenient, habitual, groove, deep, deeply grooved ways. And we begin to kind of almost become like robots. And when you are a kind of a robot or a cog in a larger social machine, like say capitalism, like say, I don't know, it could be Walmart, it could be the military industrial complex, it could be the, the you know, Rikers Island, it could be whatever it is. When you're, in, when you're a cog in a larger machine, you lose sight of the, the larger consciousness that is your birthright. And when you lose sight of that larger consciousness and you're trapped in a machine, you may not see that the machine that you're in is destroying the planet. The machine that you're in is destroying people's lives, putting them in jail. The machine that you're in is selling people false dreams because through commercials. And so I'm beginning to think that, yeah, psychedelics has a definitely a therapeutic health, you know, benefit that can happen in the medical model. But I'm really, really becoming more attracted to the 1968 attempt at using psychedelics to break down the social machine and to get us to actually reimagine what a loving world could be when our consciousness is, is not trapped in the machine. 
in all the different machines that we're trapped in. It could be the monogamy machine. It could be the mortgage machine, the marriage machine. It could be the corporate machine, the military machine. But, and, and I guess part of this is inspired by my reading a lot of evolution and astronomy. And I just think, you know, we, we've been sending out signals for many decades now. We've had our mechanical digital satellite years scraping the far ends of our galaxy. Haven't heard anything yet. And so, so far, our species is like the only kind of sentient, real sentient, you know, life at this level, which means like we're kind of the consciousness of the earth for this brief time. And for me, that makes every human life special because every human life is part of, it's like a little small flickering flame in this larger bonfire of human consciousness that is giving a small little bit of light to the universe. And all of our eyes are kind of like, a, a little bit, a little, a little kind of pixel in a larger eye that's like the larger collective human eye that's like seeing a little bit into the universe. And I just think that we human beings deserve more than buying plastic shit off of store shelves. And we deserve more than pieces of paper with faces of dead presidents on them to signify value. And we deserve more than limited love and we deserve more than starvation and we definitely deserve more than war and we don't and we definitely deserve more than poverty and we are capable of that but our consciousness has to go back to its original expanse and that's outside of the machine and right now we have to we're still trapped in the machine so i think the other thing that lsd is not just uh, psychological therapy or personal therapy but i think it's social therapy and without the without the new age mysticism and without the kind of neuroscience wonkery, just to just say from like wisdom heart level, we're trapped in this machine, but our minds are larger than this. And the world that we want to live in is actually as close as changing our minds. Ooh, you said so much there that <laughs> I... Uh that my body is just saying, yes, yes, yes. There's this resonance to everything you're saying. It just makes me think of that container, right? Because we can have these mind expanding moments that are like serious breakthroughs that they're not to be taken lightly, but also being able to ground that in as a spirit in the human body and be able to walk in the world with a new state of consciousness versus allowing that consciousness to be out there, but then returning to old ways or just continuing to go back for more without really trying to integrate what it is that you learned. And I think it's about finding that, that balance there. And it just makes me think of that container that you're talking about, which is very practical and very grounding, being able to ground that, that higher knowledge or that that capacity to touch spirit or that which cannot be seen. You know, you're writing this book called The Chemical Exodus on race and psychedelics, like you mentioned before. And um, do you mind if I just read a little part of the manuscript? I do, because it's, it's always important for an author to actually hear a book because it's not mine anymore to hear it. in some. So please go for it. Well, I, I mean, there are lots of parts that I can read to you, but just this one sort of shorter part, because 
you know, the way that you speak, you're, you are a poet and you bring this like historical knowledge and it's really, it's like you are creating this new language where things that I might hear or read, it just lands in a different way. And I don't quite even know how to name it, but it feels really wonderful. <laughs> so I just wanted to name that um, officially on record. You've said this in one way or another before, but as taken from your manuscript, quote, what psychedelics can do is dissolve the traumatic knots that keep us tied to these illusions and maybe give us the breathing space to imagine another world is possible. We need a new exodus, one that leads us back to the common body, end quote. I mean, you write amazing things, but I feel like that one, it just... I feel like it just summarizes and synthesizes what you just said before, um, leading us back to this common body because we've sort of unconsciously been cogs in a machine, which creates this illusion, which keeps us disconnected from this almost indigenous wisdom or this ancestral knowing of, you know, being a human species and not having all these divisions that separate us. Like those are just constructs and stories. And when we have layers of that compounding, 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 that's what leads to all the sort of insanity that we see today. So that excerpt really stuck out to me. Um, it just explains it really well. And, you know, talk to me about this exodus and, what is this exodus, this chemical exodus that will help us imagine and live our way into possibly this new world? <laughs> this is why we need to read the book, right? But just based on where you're at in the process. Yeah, the, the, communal, the, the chemical exodus to the communal body is placing, placing some of the question of trauma or, or the dissolving of some traumas that are in the brain and using psychedelics, literally acid to kind of dissolve some of them and to put the, the fluid openness into a kind of larger container that is, you know, one part psychology, one part spirituality, one part political economy, one part dancing or laughing or lovemaking or athleticism, but body knowledge, right? And that container roughly we can call like universalism but not in the abstract sense, but the universal things that we all do, like we breathe, so breath work. We all have a body that sweats, so dancing. We all have uh, a need for each other. So taking kind of long, quiet time to stare into each other's eyes. And that you can almost have like non-sexual tantra with other partners where you just sit into, like interlocked with each other's hips and just kind of stare at each other. At Burning Man, there was this one kind of uh, tantric workshop. And I remember I, I, me and this other guy kind of sat uh, our kind of legs around each other and we just stared and we talked. And the whole point was to use tantric in a non-sexual workshop to help people connect with each other. And we learned so much about each other and grew very close very quickly. And so then when we set, when we, the workshop was done, we gave each other a hug and I've never seen him again, but I just remember how, how deeply, uh, touched I was by some of the things he told me about his life and vice versa. So universalism in the sense of what, what do we all have in common? What is the human universal? 
Uh, so not like space and comets, but like breath and skin and bone and muscle and mind. And then the chemical exodus is to, to really think of, of using psychedelics, not just in the medical model. I'm fine. I, I hope that they succeed and, and that they wind up legalizing psychedelics for therapy and that a lot of people get the therapy that they need. I applaud that. My vision, I think, is alternate to that, which is more of a kind of clandestine, uh, clandestine uh, cell network which is, you know, obviously to avoid the popo, you know, the police. And, but also, obviously, to be honestly, even more dangerous than the police is social media, to not get it commercialized, to not get it, you know, sent out into the kind of fake pretentious images of, of a complete selfhood, you know, selfie culture, influencer culture. And to say, like, no, this is a very messy exercise. And that, you know, this is something that should be with a manual and some guidelines to keep people safe, specifically women, uh, to keep people safe as they're doing psychedelics. So have a manual, try to have like universalism as a container. How do we all start getting things back in common? You know, go, and for those of us of color, going to sites that are appropriate for us. So say, say you're a descendant of a, a Chinese family that had to work the railroads, maybe actually go there and look at some of the places where one's family may, maybe for Japanese internment camp, maybe if you're a Latino, you know, think about the islands that you were evicted from because of a dictator, or think about the places where your family came into the United States. If you're a black American, maybe go to the African Memorial uh, Museum in New York, or go to some of the places where there was auction blocks or uh, plantations and maybe hold festivals there as a way of reclaiming the land. I think one thing that people of color could do is to actually go to the places of our historical wounds and begin to throw a party there and to ask the ancestors to dance with us and to ask the ancestors if they could give us the keys to our chains and we could start to let ourselves um, permission not just to feel the ancestral pain but then also then to come up with a promise for our children what's the promise that we're going to give to them and then you know, once we begin to kind of claim the land. So in other words, we're like, my, my ancestors built this. They made this country possible. Let's start, let's start claiming it as that, no, we're American. We're, we're what America looks like. And we've always been what America looks like. We're just, the image of it is now catching up to us. It's not that we never belonged or we were never here and like we're like some foreign, strange thing. We were here from the jump. And now we're saying this, that we are the country, we've always been the country, and now we're saying we are the country, and this is ours. But you have to go to the places and to reclaim the land and, and let the land speak to you. And I think that would lead to a new environmentalism, to saying like, well, we actually love the Rockies, we love the Grand Canyon, we love the West, we love the desert, you know, we love the rainforest, we love the, the, the fields in the South, you know, we love the Arctic, uh, the Antarctic tundra, uh, we love the waterfalls, you know, and when you begin to say, you know, because the country is actually really beautiful, like the landscape of America is kind of gorgeous. And to say, actually, no, that my ancestors, you know, bled and, 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 and sweat here and that they're buried here. And this is our land, too. And then you begin to love the land and you say, well, maybe we don't need to drill, like put drills in this, like some heroin addict. You know, maybe we, we can stop. Maybe we can stop throwing things away, like 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 how we throw away our children. Maybe we can stop destroying the land because this is our land now and then finally you know reach out to i would say white the white poor and the white working class and some elements of the white middle class who are especially dealing with opioids 
and a sense of fatalism because they feel like they don't have a place anymore in America and uh, realize that they're actually kind of in a sense of vomiting up the ghost of the past and that they themselves are, are don't know how to, how to excise the ghost of the past. And they don't know how to, who to be now in this new America, but they belong here too. And to say, look, we want you as part of this family, but just like we have to deal with our ancestors, you have to deal with your ancestors, you know? And so we all have to have this reckoning. And so that's part of the, you know, because right now they, they don't realize that they're the, the, the capitalist conveyor belt that made them Irish into white, German into white, Jewish into white, Italian into white, Greek into white, that that conveyor belt has been bro- has broken down. And so now they feel kind of afloat and, and we feel like more and more empowered. And so I think that's why we need to reach out and almost like they're, they're like a prodigal son and kind of welcome them back home. And not make a big issue about it, not say like you have to jump through a lot of hoops, you know, because I think love actually does a lot more healing work than we realize. And so finally, you know, that's that's the kind of, I think, like container, you know, like universal container. And to start having, you know, Burning Man's in every, you know, Central Park, Baltimore, downtown, Philadelphia, you know, Richmond, Virginia, just to have like let a thousand burns bloom. You you mentioned in your Horizons talk envisioning a future Black Burning Man. And I just like, my heart just did a hop when you said that. And it, it made me, that visual came to mind as you were describing, you know, ethnic groups reclaiming their land and having that, that pride in your ancestry and your heritage interlock with this sense of environmentalism and care and love for the earth. And they're not separated. They're very much together and inclusive, but yeah, I mean, this black burning man, I love it, you know? And I think just the experience that you shared about how psychedelics moved you, it's like, you couldn't have taken two things and put them together to create such a, I don't know, seismic, um, consciousness portal if you will to step through (laughs) and yeah yeah I don't know if you want to say anything about a black burning man but I've never heard of that before I think it's brilliant yeah I think a black burning man is a way of burning some of the historical trauma and I think it should start at sites like the African memorial ground it should start at places where there were auction blocks but then what I really would think is that for the kind of black avant-garde to kind of get its legs under its feet, get its sea legs under itself, you know, learn how to do a burn, learn how to get it together, learn how to how to really make one happen, and then start bringing it to the poor neighborhoods, and bringing it to Section Eight, but bring all, also with it a, a sense of like an exodus, and start telling people, hey, it's exodus time, we got to get moving, and people are like moving where? We're we going back to Africa. I was like, no, we're not going back to Africa. You know what we're doing is we're actually going back to ourselves, and that what we need to do is we need to begin moving you out of the projects and we need to have black owned land with black housing that is specifically designed to help us address our intergenerational trauma. So that this way we can raise our kids collectively. Maybe it's polyamory, maybe it's just village style with monogamous families. I don't know, whatever works for whoever people, but that a way of getting people out of the trap of Section 8 housing. Because right now the Section 8 housing, it's kind of like, it's like slave ships that were just run aground and people are just basically being funneled from them into the jails and the jails are just basically kind of like a cement plantation and people are working inside those jails doing all kinds of stuff making airplane you know 
answering air, you know, air flight calls, making obviously the the license plates and furniture, like they're they're basically being sold out. So realizing that that exodus is an exodus of not just physically, but a psychological exodus from the state of kind of neo-slavery into a new freedom, into like a new like reconstruction. And the reconstruction would be, you know, the, the black upper middle class finally really kind of trying to organize the black working class and poor and all together trying to create an exodus out of the poverty, you know, and creating a new infrastructure that could help primarily burn through that intergenerational trauma and claim that larger consciousness and still make connections with other ethnic groups, other national and class groups. But realizing that there's a specific historical chain, like the the metal chains have been replaced by trauma chains and saying that we need to start cutting off those trauma chains because those are like the ghostly afterlife of slavery, you know, and we haven't really addressed that. And, and, the, and the odd thing is, is that, you know, the, the, one of the reasons I think this has to happen is I don't think that this country is ever really going to evolve until Black America is free. By that, I mean, is that when we're, you know, when people are on the street uh, for Floyd, George Floyd's uh, murder and protesting his murder by the cop, that we're protesting against an image of black suffering, death, and pain. And that's primarily what ex- what ignites the protest. We see Trayvon Martin getting shot, we protest. We see Chandra Bland, um, you know, getting killed and or being found dead in a jail, we protest. Uh, we see Eric Gardner being strangled to death, literally on video, and we protest. But the thing is, we're always protesting in response to black suffering and pain. And that's what ignites us. And I think that that's not enough. I think that Black America, aside from give, providing the wealth that started the country, the Black America has given this country its body language in terms of it's literally how people move. It's taught America how to move. It's given America a sense of a different religion uh, in the sense of like uh, making uh, liberation theology. It's actually rescued America from, from being a white ethno state to an actual multiracial democracy through the civil rights movement and the Black Power Movement, and many of its leaders have been shot down and killed on the way there. And so, you know, instead of saying we're doing this because Black America has been, you know, someone's been shot, Trayvon Martin strangled, Eric Gardner, uh, George Floyd, I think we should be out there protesting and saying, because we love you. You've already given us too much. There's nothing that we can give you in return to make up for what you lost. But you gave us our soul. You're the soul of the country. You gave us our music. You gave us our freedom. Where would we be if you didn't sacrifice so much of who you are to make us human? And we know that you're still suffering from the after effects of slavery. And we know that you're not perfect. We're not, no one's perfect. You're flawed in your own beautiful ways. But how do we, how do we create the space for you to be that butterfly, to, like, to be your best self, to burn through some of the machismo? And that's in Latin America, too to burn through some of the poverty, to burn through the, inter- the the kind of ghostly chains, the trauma chains that replace the metal chains. And I think once that happens, then so much creative genius will erupt that the rest of the country will, will cause the soul of the country will be healed then the rest of the country can move even further. And so I, I don't think we should be waiting for someone black to get shot, strangled, raped, killed, murdered, disappeared. I think we should just be out there every day saying, we're out here just because we love you. 
Thank you. Yeah, maybe, you know, some of the culture is hyper-materialistic. Maybe some of the culture is homophobic. Maybe some of the culture is ratchet. We love you. Because guess what? We're, we're fucked up too. But you're the ones who made us human. You. So out of love, we're out here. And we're out here every day consistently. Because when you're saved, we're saved. You know? So that's, I think that should, that's the difference. And, and that to me is the exodus towards a new reconstruction. Wow. This exodus, it kind of just captures everything, doesn't it? <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine if this model of this exodus, which, you know, you mentioned in your revolutionary psychedelic cells m- model, which is decentralized, which is about kind of reclaiming what's yours, what's birthright, and then coming together around that, that could be a blueprint for all the other ethnic minority groups of the world and being able to adapt those to their own cultural, historical, social, economic, political contexts. Yeah, it seems really powerful. And I guess, I mean, you're still writing this book, um, but like what could be, you you might've mentioned this before, but what could be something that someone could do now to almost like practice a form of exodus in coming back to self? Is there a particular practice or ritual or something that you do daily to remember, to embody, to integrate what you already know is possible, but right now? Yeah. I separate the psychedelic state from psychedelic drugs. I think there's maybe in our minds a little bit too much of a um, unhelpful overlap. I think the psychedelic state is literally, you know, how one can manipulate the chemicals in your brain to achieve a different consciousness. And obviously psychedelic drugs and really all drugs, even coffee, you know, changes your consciousness, changes the chemicals. So for me though, it's writing. I find that I do kind of surrealist freeform writing in my journal and I meditate and I work out and I jog and it kind of keeps my focused and clear. I also teach literature. So, you know, on my shelves where these candles are, you know, there's the Norton Anthology of African, uh, African-American literature. There's the world uh, world literature, Norton Anthology of world literature, uh, uh, the American Lit Anthology, Amer- Norton Anthology of poetry. And that's us on this shelf. There's a bunch of other shelves. So for me, I'm constantly surrounded by these, you know, I just taught Gilgamesh, you know, it's one of the oldest myths in, in the world. So the classic of world history. So it's like, there's all of, I, I'm surrounded by like, I'm surrounded by classic literature that helps keep me focused on things that are larger than just this, the present now and, and, and this construct. So the thing is, I would just say everyone has to find their way to it, but not just set and setting. Think about your container and think about what is it that's the heaviest thing in your life and lift that first. So if, and that psychedelics can come in the form of psychedelic drugs. It can come in the form of psilocybin, mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, or, you know, the toad or, you know, DMT or any of those, whichever one you use, think about what the actual chemical effects are, what you need to safely do them, uh, what your set and setting is. If you're going to have a guide, make sure that you trust them, you know them, or if you just have someone who's sitting with you, but then try to think of what your container is going to be. You know, why am I doing this? Because when you dissolve your ego and your, your inner emotion begins to rise and the waves begin to hit the rocks, you need to ask, what rocks do I need to smash? What things do I need to open up? And then you see the rocks, when you open them up, there's like an egg inside and you take the egg and you open that up and it's like a new you flies out. And so you have to ask, okay, well, which, 
what am I going to focus this on? So if you're from a, you know, if you're dealing with, let's say, intergenerational ethnic trauma, maybe think about your grandparents, you know, write down, see what you can talk, think, think about them, maybe talk to them in your mind, write down something in their voice. If you're thinking about your parents, think about their voices. What, what, is, what have they gone through? Think about your family. Long before you even take that first dose, set yourself up to think like, what am, like, you know, ang- make your brain into like a telescope, like a target, like a, you know, a, a telescope, and then really focus in on like, okay, well, what, it, you know, what's what's been going through my family from this? If you're a woman and, and you've had moments of fear because men didn't respect your boundaries and ask yourself, like, well, how's it shaped me? How's it shaped my sense of self, my self-image? If you're working from class trauma, ask yourself, like, well, do I feel imposter syndrome? Am I sabotaging myself? Am I am I climbing for status symbols because I think they'll give me safety? You know, what's the history of money in my family? In other words, like set yourself up before. Do at least two weeks of, of mental prep work before you do that kind of trip. And then have set setting in a container, if possible, someone to sit with you. But the container is, what's the larger consciousness that I want to achieve? And how do I work through this on the way there? And know that it'll be a, a hard trip. It's not like going to the rave and turning up the music and having a good time. Not that you can't dance and move. But the other thing is that psychedelic drugs in the cliche category aren't the only way. There's dancing, there's lovemaking, there's running, there's sports, weightlifting, there's you know hiking at night, walking across a desert. You know, there, there's like extreme strenuous work that you can do through the body to also achieve a psychedelic state. So the psychedelic state is this large land. It's a large place. And there's many roads to get to the psychedelic state. And the classic drugs are just a very wide, well-traveled road, but there's lots of trails and smaller dirt roads and pathways that you can get there and that you just have to find the one that really works for you. So, so yeah, I would say think about that as, as one of your ways in, into the psychedelic state. And when you come out with that container, you can carry that container with you in your sober waking state. And then kind of pull things out of it and say, oh, I remember this thought, or I remember this insight, or I remember this image. And then start to take those and start to build a life around them. You know, so take those artifacts from this luminous heaven that you're going to visit and say that these are the new foundation stones of my life. And, and the thing about it is that you probably will feel very comfortable because these foundation stones are not coming from the outside in. It's not like you read the Bible and you're like, oh, I'm going to not be a Christian or you read the Quran. Now I'm going to not be a Muslim or you read the Marxist capital. Now I'm going to be a Marxist or Adam Smith's, you know, you know, his book, whatever, Wealth of Nations. Now I'm going to be a fundamentalist free market. It's not like it's coming from the outside in. Those foundation stones that you get through your journey, those eggs, they're going to feel incredibly comfortable and natural because they come from you. And you're going to realize like, oh, these are parts of my own inner body. And so when you step on them like stones, like steps going up, you're going to be like, oh, this feels totally natural because it's you. It's actually just you. It's coming from you, not from the outside. And that's, that's when you know that you're on solid ground. You know, when your own body becomes the staircase that you use to get to a higher consciousness. And then that's when I mean the communal body, because you realize everyone else is also using that same staircase. And then everyone starts getting to the same place. 
And it's easier to have a kind of city on a hill when everyone uses the body as a staircase because everyone then kind of gets to the same place. But if everyone's reading different books and reading different mythologies and ideologies and theologies, we're all going to then constantly be lost inside a kind of crystal of words, inside of this hologram of words, and we're not going to see each other because we're going to be too busy looking at the words. You know, start from the body. Everyone knows breath. Everyone knows pain. Everyone knows joy. Everyone knows sweat. Everyone knows those basic things. So then we can start from there. <sighs> everything <laughs> captures everything. <laughs> and, you know, the mind body connection, I think, you know, culture is primed to understand and be open to that. And it's about coming back to the body's intelligence. And much like we talked about before this podcast started, but knowing that, you know, our histories and our traumas and our stories can be passed down for 14 generations in our DNA, knowing that we have the power to actually literally re-embody something new to pass down something different is, is really, it's really empowering. And yeah, it's a, it's a path to this liberation that, you know, we're speaking about. So there's so much to marinate on. Uh, you've, I mean, integration is the heart and soul of the show and you've integrated like everything. <laughs> everything that I didn't know could be bridged. Yeah, you just do it in a really, um, like in your own language. It's, it's, uh, it's like, I understand it, but like my body needs to go and understand it a few more times. <laughs> so while I marinate on this, as do our listeners, I just, you know, I just want to thank you for, yeah, what you are creating right now and what you are envisioning for the future. And I really want to know how, the community can find and follow your work and just be connected to you from this moment forward. So would you like to share like a website or just how to find you or connect to you if you want to, yeah, if listeners want to move beyond this conversation and continue this journey? Yeah, I, I am on Instagram and it's, it's Nicholas Power. So like my last name is like Powers with the S but I think I got too quick with the keyboard. So I, I lost the S. So it's power. So there it is. It's Nicholas Power on Instagram, um, Nicholas Power on Facebook. And those are the two most accessible means. And then my website's going to, I just I have a very kind of basic website that's going to go back up. And because it had to get retooled. And so that's going back up, which is, looks even better. And I think mostly is that the articles are there, the talks are there. And so then I could, you know, back and forth with any question. But I think mostly it's that if there's anything that seems relevant to you, that of course I'm more than happy to talk with people, but don't please, I'm I'm not a guru and I'm not, you know, that's not a position, a, a, a social position that I'm really interested in because that, that imagines that I'm, I know more than I do and that my felicity with words uh, lends itself to a sense of authority that I may not have earned. And I think that's just not realistic. Um, you know, I'm flawed and I also just have complete incomplete knowledge of a lot of things. So what I would do is that this, if, if the journey that I am on appeals to you, I would suggest maybe using it as a template and then finding and creating your own journey. Because I think what that does is it multiplies how much um, each of us raises our sp specific consciousness in a way that's appropriate for us. The worst thing that you can do 
is to take my words and then to use them as kind of like, um, you know, some kind of like, you know, a, a very specific guidebook when like a dogma. Yeah, because the the weights that I had to lift, some of them you share, but some of them you don't and you may have your own. So just use use maybe the methods that I have, which I've borrowed from other older sources and just put them together in my way. Use those methods to get to your unique and more accurate to you psychedelic sublime truth. And um and 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 I think that's the best as a human being, that's the best thing I can offer you is not in any way to get, get captured by my poetry, um, but to actually uh, discover your own. And, and so if I never hear from you, but if you find some of this is helpful to your own journey, that to me means that the world will have dramatically increased, even if you and I never make any contact. Thank you, Nicholas, for all of your wisdom and your stories um, and the work. And um, yeah, for all of you listeners out there, if you feel uplifted, shifted in any way, please help us amplify the story far and wide. Give us a subscribe, a share, a review if you feel called. Um, yeah. And I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and we'll see you next week. The Alt-Normal. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show us the love. You can subscribe, share, or leave a review. We'd be so grateful to help us amplify these stories far and wide. Thanks so much.